FM in Calgary. The whole business of mobilizing people, organizing people, it's got to be right on the top of our radar screen because that's what's been proven successful throughout American history. If you make a list of all the things that we inherited from our ancestors or forebears, uh, the blessings, most of them started with a handful of people and ended in victory with not more than a few tens of thousands or, or hundreds of thousands of people. Even the civil rights movement never had more than 1%. That's Ralph Nader, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Ralph Nader on mobilizing people. Concentrated wealth and power undermine democracy and advance plutocracy. The 1% have inordinate influence over the rest of us. Wall Street dominates Main Street. How do ordinary people break through the oligarchic system to assert their interests over the interests of the super-rich? As Ralph Nader says, however we look at it, the wealthy few use the relentless mechanism of commercialism to trample democracy, the natural environment, and the common good. Our grievances are many, Nader says, and the power of citizenship, community, and national pride should be enough to mobilize the population to organize resistance and change. Our guest today is Ralph Nader, the legendary champion of consumer rights. Life magazine ranked him as one of the most influential Americans of this era. Many lives have been saved by his decades-long work. He's helped us drive safer cars, eat healthier food, breathe better air, drink cleaner water, and work in safer conditions. I talked with him on February 17th, just 10 days before his 88th birthday. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'd like you to talk about a couple of recent articles you've written, Think Big to Overcome Losing Big to Corporatism, and the other one, Uh, is called Facilitating Civic and Political Energies for the Common Good. And I loved your comment in the Think Big piece. You write, alas, Richard Nixon was the last Republican president to be afraid of liberals. That's right. Uh, He was so afraid of liberals and what he called the liberal press that he put Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat, as a special assistant, and he proposed a minimum income plan to abolish poverty, which Congress squabbled and didn't pass. He proposed a better health insurance system than Clinton did later. Uh, He supported voting rights for the residents of uh, the District of uh, Columbia, and he signed into law the the legislation creating EPA, uh, OSHA, the Job Safety Agency, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and it was quite extraordinary looking back on it. He even signed the Charter Air and Water Pollution Laws, 1970, I think 1972, which to this day uh, we rely on. In other words, there hasn't been a real comprehensive upgrade. Uh, 
uh, in the air and water pollution have been uh, scattered amendments in the following 50 years. Now, imagine a Republican president behaving like that. Well, why was he afraid of liberals? Because he was coming out of the 1960s where there were all kinds of demonstrations, marches. The energy level was on the progressive side, uh, and there was a rumble from the people, and he heard it. Uh, and then uh, who knows what happened? The, the public took all these wonderful advances, protections for environment, consumer, workers, Freedom of Information Act, uh, and other measures for granted, and, you know, went back and didn't do the marching, the protesting, and all the other things that make the sovereignty of the people more reverberating through the halls of Congress. We now have uh, Democratic presidents who are more cautious and fearful uh, of right-wingers and strong progressives, uh, and they end up becoming less progressive than some liberal Republicans were 40, 45 years ago. All this comes down to the people. They have been uh, distracted, uh, depressed, discouraged, spending too much time watching screens instead of watching each other at civic meetings and rallies and showing up at town halls and town meetings and uh, buttonholing members of Congress when they come back from Washington. And I've been trying to convey that those early years in the 60s and 70s, and it never took more than 1% of the people reflecting a majority opinion uh, or in increasing opinion to a majority level to overcome the corporations in Congress. I mean, there was a time when we would say we can get any environmental consumer bill through Congress. The only question is whether we had enough to override a presidential veto. Can you imagine saying that today? Those those laws, if they were introduced today, they were they would be lucky to get a hearing, much less go to the floor, because Congress now is a cocoon, and uh, uh, some members are better than others, obviously, but as a collective, as an institution, it's given its power on foreign policy and military policy to the, the White House, abandoned its constitutional duties to declare war, for example. Uh, or not declare war. It's surrounded itself by corporate PACs and money in politics. Uh, a lot of the staff are recruited from the K Street lobbying corridor in Washington. They stay a couple years, three years, and they go back and hire uh, corporate jobs to lobby again. Uh, and worse all, you can't get through to members of Congress or their staff. It's almost impossible. We've documented this so well, we're coming out with a report soon called The Incommunicados, with letters, actually, that we've written a serious letters on foreign military policy, on uh, democracy issues, uh, on holding uh, uh, presidents accountable, uh, on corporate crime. Never even get an acknowledgement. I've talked about this in my syndicated column, syndicated <laughs> through the Internet mostly, uh, you can get it free just by signing up. Go go to uh, nader.org and sign up, uh, and you can get it every week automatically free. Now, this column uh, recently has boiled down a lot of my thesis, which is you can break through power. It's easier than you think. Uh, 
It takes less than 1% of people organized in congressional districts. That's about 2.5 million adults, 1%. You have 500-so volunteers in each district, and they get together. They set up an office. They have two people. They connect with each other uh, throughout the 435 districts and, and the states, and they say, okay, well, what do we want now? That's long overdue. Okay, universal health insurance, that's long overdue. Many Western European countries in Canada have it, and it's much superior, more efficient, less uh, uh, bad things happen when uh, you can uh, rely on health insurance to diagnose and treat your problems in time. Uh, living wage uh, should all be 15 right away, and, you know, it's still seven and a quarter federal. That's what Congress has been sitting on, $7.25 an hour, getting a different tax system, all kinds of good proposals to make the rich and the big corporations pay taxes and not, you know, have dozens of corporations making profits, paying no federal income tax, or even getting refunds because of the craziness of the tax system. And we haven't had lower taxes on the super rich and the corporations uh, in decades, going back to the 20s. Uh, correct so, me if I'm mistaken, but wasn't it during the Eisenhower period of the 50s, which saw tremendous uh, economic growth, that was paralleled by very, very high rates of taxation, was it not? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, it started at 90%. Of course, nobody paid that, but that was... a rate. Then it went down to 70, then it went down to 40, and now the taxes on uh, maximum profit corporations is about 21%. Uh, and the highest taxes on individuals are about 39%. Uh, so it's, as you say, it's much lower than the 50s, much lower in the pro than the prosperous 60s. But somehow, all this campaign money has convinced enough Democrats and all the Republicans that these guys are producers of workers. You know, they, they call them job creators. They're sitting on a mountain of money invested in the stock market uh, or in the bond market or overseas. They don't create any jobs. Uh, so this is sheer power over Congress. Again, Congress is the great ground for losing or winning a democratic objective, small d. Uh, whether we like it or not, it is the most powerful branch of government under the Constitution. It essentially creates and expands the other two after they were established, uh, the, the three branches. But, you know, the, the Congress has the appropriations, spending power, the tax power, the confirmation power over judges and other high officials. So we talk and talk about all these abuses and make these analogies and, and, and analytics and feel good about our brilliant diagnoses. Uh, we don't do enough back home to make it happen. So in my little book, Breaking Through Power, it's easier than we think. One, I give a lot of examples where a handful of people, including us, changed Congress and beat, beat back the big corporations and auto safety and the polluters and a lot of other things. We didn't have a thousand people around the country, you know, seriously uh, volunteering. Uh, and, and it was done because we represented public opinion in the media. And the media played it. And the senators and representatives saw it. We were in the New York Times, AP, uh, 
you know, Denver Post, uh, all over, and uh, networks. Well, you don't have that now. However, if we can get up to about 1%, then we can initiate the summons. By that I mean, it's hard to get through to the senators and representatives. There's 535 of them. We know their names. That's why it's so easy to to be able to influence them compared to millions in a, in a faceless bureaucracy or thousands of judges with all their rules. Uh, and if, if we have that, we can summon them formally. You know, we can say, whereas Congress has abandoned its responsibilities to we the people, it's misusing the sovereign power of the people, it has allowed the tax system to be taken over by the rich and the corporate, it is wasting our money on a bloated military budget, which can uh, be d- redirected uh, to rebuild America and create jobs right in your own community uh, and provide public services. Anyway, if you have 500 people with clear writing their names, their contacts, and their occupation or profession. So it's not just scribbling uh, on a pad in a, in a street corner petition. You'll get a senator to come. I think 300 would get a representative to come, to come to your town hall or to your school auditorium so you can connect with them and give them their instructions, show how the people of the district or the state really want uh, what you're proposing, uh, and tell them, uh, go back to Washington. If you have any problems, uh, come back, or we'll summon you again. We want action. So they know you're not going to peter out. You know, you're not going to dissipate your one-time burst of civic energy, that you're there. And in my two columns, uh, I criticized the progressive citizen groups because they're thinking too small. They've been beaten down so much under uh, Reagan and Bush and Clinton, all, all the presidents who never really lifted up these citizen groups or reflected their uh, policies. And I said, look, you're thinking too small. You've been losing the wars against the corporate supremacists, you have been losing the battles against these corporate predators, and you've only won a few skirmishes. You're losing most of your skirmishes. So you can't simply stay with a a strategy of the 1970s in the year 2022. You can't stay with a measly budget. They're they're outspending you a 1,000 to 1. They have a 1,000 more lobbyists than you do. You've got to go and do what you don't want to do. There are all kinds of billionaires being created all over the country. Let's say 99% of them would never lift a finger to help the people. Uh, okay, 1%, that's more than enough. A half of 1%, terrific. You need two, three billionaires to mobilize uh, their friends to get $20 billion over 10 years. That's a billion dollars a year these progressive groups, broken down $100 million categories. The first $100 million would push Congress to get through long overdue living wage, universal health care, all this supported by 70% or more of the people before the campaign even starts. All this supported by about a third of Congress already. All right? The second $100 million, let's say, deals with the tax system. The third $100 million deals with auditing and cutting back that military budget that is creating so much empire and so much boomerang against our own security, not to mention 
what we've done to these foreign lands, some of whom are seeking revenge because we've destroyed their societies from Iraq to Afghanistan and uh, Libya and other places. Undeclared illegal wars. And so I'm going to go through in the succeeding column each hundred million dollars. And they would hire people back home and in Congress. And they would develop their own media. Uh, and they would directly lobby each member of Congress. You know, the most successful citizen lobbies, they don't do any marching and demonstrating. You don't see APAC marching and demonstrating. You don't see the NRA marching and demonstrating. What do they do? They focus on personal lobbying of each senator representative. They know who they go golfing with, who their lawyer or doctor is, who their connection back home. They get to know the staff. They have lunch with them, and, and, and that's the way they get their way. And, of course, they provide campaign money. But citizen groups can provide public opinion, focus public opinion. is much more powerful on members uh, of Congress. Look what they did in Congress just a few days ago. In a big, lopsided, bipartisan Republican-Democrat vote, they said that these fine print contracts that workers have to sign with their employers – and go into forced arbitration, those provisions are repealed by congressional statute as unconscionable in sexual abuse cases. Now, you see, why just sexual abuse cases? How about uh, cancer-causing chemical cases in factories or foundries? Uh, because they put their finger to the wind, and the, the, the drive to get rid of sexual assault and sexual harassment is at a peak in this country. And it pulls enormously. And bingo, they passed it right through, and Biden signs it. So this is what I mean. Less than 1% of the people were representing public opinion, focusing it, knowing what they're talking about, so they know how to argue and debate and rebut and all the palaver that will come out. And then summoning the members of Congress, handing them their instructions, telling them if they have any questions, they know who to call. We can have another meeting in the district or in the state. We want action. And people should know that the, the best changes in American history tend to occur very rapidly. If you just start piece by piece and you spread it out like health insurance, Universal was proposed by Harry Truman in the 1940s. We still don't have it. Because the more it spreads out, the more the uh, opposition companies learn how to game it, how to undermine it, how to delay it even more. We got the auto safety uh, laws passed in about six months. The first hearings were March 1966. September, I was invited to Lyndon Johnson's signing ceremony at the White House, and it was done. If we spread it out, if we saw, oh, let's just have a provision requiring recalls of defective vehicles. And then in a couple of years, we'll try to get a, a better standard for brakes or handling or in mandatory installation of seatbelts. We never would have got it. Um, there's huge uh, connections and huge uh, congruence between a lot of liberals and conservatives, uh, totaling maybe 70% or more in the polls, but they're never publicized because we've got two parties engaged in dividing and ruling, especially the Republican Party. So they keep adding all these issues 
about div- voter fraud, which is a fraudulent assertion, uh, to divide and rule people. Meanwhile, back at home, Elm Street, USA, Main Street, USA, where people live, work, and raise their families, there's a tremendous agreement about all these livelihood issues, these children protection issues, this rebuild the public works and the bridges and public transit and drinking water systems and highways in our community. Tremendous agreement on reducing penalties in the juvenile injustice system. In fact, about 12 legislatures have already passed those with uh, Republican and Democrat support. There's tremendous uh, agreement on breaking up the big banks, tremendous agreement on empowering unions, uh, more unions. That comes in very high. There's even two-thirds of the people want more uh, viable third party. They may not come out and vote, but people know that the voters have a right to have more voices and choices on the ballot. So, again, go to Nader.org. It's not just words. It's action. Now, speaking of Congress, uh, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times once called that hallowed institution, I'm quoting, a forum for legalized bribery. But uh, you were talking uh, in somewhat vague terms about how the country has changed and how liberals have been backsliding. I think um, you might overlook the very significant Powell Memorandum of 1971. Uh, the Washington Monthly has called it the blueprint for corporate power. Uh, Lewis Powell was a corporate lawyer. He was later appointed to the Supreme Court by Nixon. He warned the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that, quote, Business and the enterprise system are in deep trouble, and the hour is late. And then he had this to say about you. Perhaps the single most effective antagonist of American business is Ralph Nader, who, thanks largely to the media, has become a legend in his own time and an idol of millions of Americans. That was his assessment then. How do you feel about the Powell Memorandum today? Is it significant? Yeah, it was significant in the sense that it was directed to uh, the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and led to the creation of the Business Roundtable, uh, which is is composed only of big CEOs of big companies. And then they started creating these action groups on every subject imaginable, even trying to privatize Social Security uh, weaken enforcement for the regulatory agencies, uh, weaken the, the rights of wrongfully injured people in court under tort law. They called it tort reform. Uh, and basically uh, bloat the military budget for all the contracts that they wanted and increase corporate welfare, handouts, giveaways, bailouts, all the things that have happened since. So it did... It, it, it wasn't that, that smart a memo. It wasn't that detailed. I mean, it was zany in some ways. Uh, Mr. Powell thought the main uh, power of resistance uh, were the campuses. Uh, he thought if they put some emphasis on getting uh, pro-corporate professors and speakers on campus, they could uh, uh, block the, the engine of all these uh, uh, socialistic and whatever other words he he used in that memo uh, things that were getting the ear of members of Congress. Well, <laughs> look at the campuses today. 
they're dead zones by and large. Uh, the law schools are dead zones by and large. They're like trade schools. They hardly have any courses on corporate crime or consumer empowerment. They are just heading for the big corporate law firms of the commercial practice of law, not uh, expanding the law so that tens of millions of people can use it and advance justice uh, on their own. They've even taken over the small claims court. The creditors and landlords now control the small claims court. They use it more than the poor debtors who don't even know it exists because it's not well publicized. And in a place like Connecticut, you fought, let's say you're a debtor or you're a tenant, you want to file a claim in a small claims court, you're supposed to be able to do it cheaply and without a lawyer. You've got to pay $95 just to get in to the small claims court in Connecticut, never mind what happens later. So we have to start studying all the ways these corporations control us. The whole business of mobilizing people, organizing people, it's got to be right on the top of our radar screen because that's what's been proven successful throughout American history. If you make a list of all the things we inherited from our ancestors or forebears, uh, the blessings, most of them started with a handful of people and ended in victory with not more than a few tens of thousands or or hundreds of thousands of people. Even the Civil Rights Movement never had more than 1% of people who would put in, say, five, ten hours a week of volunteer time mobilizing for civil rights. Well, you made your reputation on auto safety. What's your assessment of e-cars? Are they safe? Well, the electric cars, which are now going to be selling faster and faster, have fewer parts. Um, they have fewer repairs. There's a ba- there may be battery problems uh, to be worked out. They can certainly have all the safety features, uh, the padded dash panels and the better brakes and tires and airbags and rollover protection. But there are going to be some problems. They're going to be more dangerous for pedestrians because uh, they don't make any noise. So especially elderly people crossing the street, you know, they, if they don't look both ways, uh, they're not going to hear the electric car. So we'll, we'll have to be adjusting and paying attention to that. And to continue on uh, electric cars, uh, I mean, the New York Times says uh, they represent the biggest upheaval in, in the auto industry since Henry Ford introduced the Model T in 1908. And then the International Energy Agency um, said the rapid growth of e-cars could make 2022 the year when the march of battery-powered cars becomes unstoppable, erasing any doubt that the internal combustion engine is lurching toward obsolescence. Do you agree with that assessment about lurching toward obsolescence? Yes, after many false starts starting in the early 20th century, you know, there were electric cars in the early 20th century. Um, Yes, Um, I think this time it's for real for two reasons. Uh, One is the global warming issue. And the second is it's no longer up to GM and Ford uh, to decide. There are too many cars, companies now, Europe, Asia, and also upstarts. There's... There are now two or three 
electric truck companies starting up, like Rivian uh, out of uh, Ohio, uh, not to mention uh, Tesla. Uh, so it's, it's obvious that the oligopoly control of the auto industry is broken. And uh, already, I think about 7% of new cars uh, sold in the world are electric. But you'll see that go up really very, very quickly. But what will happen to the millions of workers, the makers of mufflers and uh, you know other parts, carburetors and uh, gas tanks and all the rest? Uh, they're going to be left in the lurch, as it were. There's not enough attention paid to that. I'm surprised the United Auto Workers haven't made a bigger public issue. For some reason, they're in negotiation with these companies to try to deal with adjusts and uh, and transitions. Uh, and they don't really want to uh, appear like uh, they're against technological progress. But you're right. It will take fewer uh, workers, but then automation was moving anyway to repair, to replace these uh, workers. There's a, there's a lot more we have to find out about batteries, about uh, how these cars uh, behave under different uh, weather conditions, their durability. Uh, you know, they haven't met the test yet, uh, but it, it really looks like when you have uh, companies saying they're going to be 50% electric in 10 years, and you have increasingly governments and places like California where they say uh, we want X percent of new vehicles, zero emission. Well, zero emission is another word for electric cars. Uh, so you're getting mandates starting to emerge. Uh, so uh, that's why we have to expand the solar energy industry you have to expand the mass transit industry, a lot of work and worker opportunities in those industries. You're listening to Ralph Nader on Mobilizing People. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's one 800 444 one nine seven seven or go online our website alternative radio.org that's alternative radio.org the key ingredient of course would be the battery in these electric cars and ingredients that go into those batteries like lithium nickel cobalt uh, they w- will become much sought after and um potentially leading to conflicts. Already prices for these materials, for these precious resources, are skyrocketing. That's right. Uh, for example, uh, some of these materials, uh, raw materials are in the Congo, and there's like the equivalent of a gold rush of uh, companies rushing in. Uh, the governments see opportunities there for revenue. Other people see opportunities for payoffs. We don't know what the evolution of batteries is going to head into. So some of these raw materials may not be the kind needed in different kinds of batteries. Uh, There's all kinds of innovation starting in batteries and in a race to see who's going to win over what period of time. But you're right. uh, A lot of the key raw materials are not in the United States. Uh, Some of them are in East Asia. Bolivia has lithium. 
Yes. Well, lithium is is more widely distributed. Canada has quite a bit of lithium, and they're discovering more and more. Uh, but uh, but you point to an interesting thing: the electric cars may not pollute, but the mining of the materials for these batteries may indeed be very serious pollutants. In the recent Nation magazine article, uh, Bryce Covert writes, the media pays a lot of attention to rising crime, but more than twice as many people die in traffic collisions in the United States. And then he adds, we need to rethink the way we design cars. Since 2000, the hood height of passenger trucks has increased by 11% and their weight by 24%. Consumer reports found many trucks and SUVs have blind spots in front that are 11 feet longer than those of sedans. Many vehicles make it difficult for drivers to see pedestrians. You mentioned that uh, in relation to the e-cars being uh, silent and increase the chance of fatality when they crash into someone. Yes, there's a lot more... uh automotive safety design for heavy trucks, light trucks, and in many different modes of traffic. The national trucking lobby has been very obstinate in not moving as fast as we would want them to move in terms of braking. And, you know, when you have these big trucks in back of you or in front of you and they they have differential braking speeds compared to you, you can imagine the crunch that could occur and a very large number of fatalities involve these trucks. We outlined the next frontier for motor vehicle safety in a report that came out a few months ago, uh, and it was on the anniversary of unsafening speed, and it's on our website free. If you go to nader.org, you should see a reference to it. And not only talks of the progress that's been made in the over 4 million lives saved, uh, but it talks of what more needs to be done, as the Nation article partially pointed out. Well, trucks are also in the news because of the blockade actions in Ottawa and, and elsewhere throughout uh, Canada. Uh, what did you think of, the, of that action? Well, it certainly it demonstrates that a very tiny number of people can make quite a difference in terms of raising their own issues. Uh, this was a tiny, tiny number of truckers. I mean, 90% of the Canadian truckers who go back and forth over the U.S. border uh, are fully vaccinated. And uh, the political movement that they asserted they were representing is a tiny fraction of Canadian voters and public opinion. And it wasn't really clear what they were blockading in four or five Canadian cities principally Ottawa, other than they didn't want a vaccine mandate and a mask mandate. Some of the right-wingers in Western Canada wanted to uh, take advantage of the visibility, and they started going after Prime Minister Trudeau on other issues. But it certainly was un-Canadian-like. I mean, we came out with a little book years ago, about 1993, that was a bestseller in Canada called Canada First, They were first in so many things in North America and the world, not just sports and science. They they brought credit unions to our country, uh, universal health insurance they have. 
the first children's theater. I mean, it was a much more gentle land. It wasn't so overcome by the frantic materialism uh, of uh, their neighbor to the south. They had a a social safety net that they didn't uh, sacrifice to crass, avaricious materialism of commercial interest. And then to see this happen, it was quite surprising. I don't think they're going to allow this to happen again. They didn't want any uh, injuries or exploding uh, trucks, so they just didn't enforce the laws. Uh, until they decided they had to start making some arrests uh, because they just didn't want martyrs to be created. But I think uh, they're going to be ready for any subsequent uh, truck raid like that. So it can be it can be stopped before it really gets control of the borders or the bridges. To get back to this issue of uh, safety and transportation. Certainly, mass transit is an area that uh, demands uh, growth, particularly uh, since we're in an era of climate chaos. But uh, our rail system, particularly passenger trains, is a joke. There's no other word to describe it. It is a joke. It lags far behind Asia and Europe. Why is the U.S. so far behind? The highway lobby, uh, the, the oil industry the auto industry, and the highway construction industry for decades uh, beat back mass transit. It became so bad that the Justice Department, after World War II, actually indicted and convicted General Motors, an oil and a tire company, uh, for conspiracy to buy up trolley systems in over 30 metropolitan areas, tear them up, and replace them with roads. And uh, the the punishment was disgraceful. There were no prison sentences at all. I think the, there maybe have been a couple million dollar fine uh, of General Motors. Uh, however, it did give the highway lobby some pause, but they'd already won their victory. The trolley routes were ripped up even right in Washington, D.C., for example. The biggest one was in L.A. It was the the biggest rapid transit system in the world. It covered miles and miles. Uh, and it was all basically uprooted for this maze of highways and the congestion it produced. Now, moving to the present day, the Biden infrastructure plan has billions of dollars for Amtrak for upgrading and repairing billions of dollars if the uh, Republicans do not succeed in blocking it. You recently uh, wrote an article on National Public Radio, um, the network's main news programs, Morning Edition and All Things Considered, have millions of listeners across the United States. Now, in the 1980s and 90s, NPR featured such progressive voices as Molly Ivins, Erwin Knoll, and Michael Harrington. Today, they've been replaced by the likes of David Brooks and think tank experts. You get on local NPR affiliates, but rarely on the flagship news programs. Is that correct? Yes, it is. There needs to be public hearings on public radio and public broadcasting. I was part of the effort in 1969-70 in Congress going up and down the corridors 
to try to get the legislation that created the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and resulted in NPR and PBS. And today, these public stations have veered quite sharply from their original mission. They were supposed to take the place of a vacuum. The commercial radio stations would give you weather, sports, music, and endless ads. And public radio and public uh, television were not supposed to engage in any of that. They were supposed to give you local, state, national, and international news, features, and give voice to the people. Uh, Look at the situation now. You have, by my count, about 30 ads an hour on NPR. 30 ads, national and local. There's hardly three minutes to go by without ads. Sometimes they have three local ads, then they have three national ads, then they go into Marketplace, which has two ads before they even start. Even the commercial networks don't start with ads, but NPR starts uh, it's, it's a lot of its programs with ads, and a lot of them are major corporations. They really ignore a lot of civic voices. WMAC in Albany does a better job because they, they have about 15 reporters in New York, Massachusetts, Vermont, and they cover the local government and local elections probably better than many other local public radio. But it, it, you're right. What they do, It's become very commercialized. It's heavily entertainment. There's far more entertainment than there is civic news. They keep saying, you don't understand the short attention span. You don't understand we're, lo- we're losing the young. I said, well, <laughs> why don't you give voice to the young? They spend so much time interviewing each other. You know, the, the, well, public radio was not designed to, to have reporters interview each other or anchors interview reporters. And then you put these little sound bites from university professors or commercial consulting firms in between their own sound bites. It's all very dreary, uh, but uh, it's easy for NPR and PBS to feel complacent. Why? <laughs> Look at their competition. The rancid commercial media that's taken over the public airways that we own and get no rent from these profitable radio and TV stations under the 1934 Communications Act. We're the landlords, they're the tenants, and they don't pay us any rent, and they decide who says what where 24 hours a day. So that's what I mean. People grow up accepting this because it's so deeply embedded in the culture and unquestioned in our educational uh, classes as well as in the civic and political arenas uh, that we just accept it. They've taken away our public property for nothing, and we let them get away with it. And no politician makes an issue out of it. Where does it say that we own the airwaves? Is that codified anywhere? Yes, it is. If you read the communications literature, they will say that these are the public airwaves regulated by the Federal Communication Commission. Uh, And then when you go deeper, you say, well, they're supposed to be adhering to the provision in the 1934 Communication Act of meeting the public interest, convenience, and necessity. That means they've got to assess local news needs and respond. And under the now-rejected Fairness Doctrine, if someone like Rush Limbaugh would only promote nuclear power on his program, 
the, the stations would be obligated to have the opposing critical view have some uh, time on, on the station. Well, that was repealed under the Reagan administration. And so we don't even have that kind of right of reply. But I'll tell you what. Uh, I was in law school for three years, and we hardly talked about the commons. We hardly talked about the public lands, the public airways, trillions of dollars the taxpayers paid to build all these industries, uh, Silicon Valley, aerospace, nanotech, biotech, container industry, half of them pharmaceutical industry, who put ads in papers bragging as if they did it by themselves on their own nickel. No, we built it. And what do we get for it? Nothing but high prices and gouging. Now, in terms of uh, content, uh, you write that uh, NPR, quote, needs far more focus on class. What do you mean by that? I mean that right now, the uh, if you listen to NPR, it's all about race. They talk about racial abuses, racial bigotry, racial exploitation. So if there are hospital shortages under uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, they'll have an article that has a disproportionate effect on black people. And it's very important that after all these years, minorities get some attention. Uh, And that included uh, minority authors, artists, poets, and so forth. But they don't go very deep. When they talk about the the, uh, plight, the travail, of, of these people with these touching interviews, minorities, they don't go deep and say, well, why are they in this situation? Is it just plight radio that you just talk about the human interest and the anguish and the emotional pain and, and how children are being deprived and hunger and denial of health care benefits? If they brought in class, they would start asking questions, well, you know, Systemic corporatism produces systemic racism. Oh, what do you mean? Well, uh, the way tenants are treated badly, the way the healthcare system treats minorities worse, the way the credit industry, the loan sharks, the rent-to-own rackets, all these things are a heritage of the commercial exploitation called slavery. And corporations created the underclass. After slavery was ended, there was Jim Crow. There was also industrial workers in dungeon factories where they could hardly make enough money to put food on the table. So these corporations created the underclass. And by definition, if you're part of an underclass, you are the least powerful. You're the most powerless of the people and very subject to commercial exploitation, such as redlining by banks and insurance companies of inner-city, low-income minority uh, places, which doom these places. If you if you can't get home mortgages and insurance, the whole neighborhoods decline as, as well. So systemic corporatism produces systemic racism. And that's what happens when you just talk about uh, discriminatory injustice and you don't talk about indiscriminatory injustice. That is, uh, injustice affects everybody, white, black, brown, everybody, like uh, global warming and and, uh, floods and tornadoes and fires, etc. affects everybody. Uh, 
the credit abuses affect everybody. The, the abuses by landlords affect everybody. Sure, if you're minority, you might get a, a bigger brunt. But if you talk class, you unify people. The way uh, NPR operates, as I said in one of my articles recently, that over 60 million poor whites are entitled to ask NPR, what about us? Why aren't we hearing stories about us? Uh, so I think it's very divisive to ignore class and focus just on race because class abuses feed this kind of racism. And Cornell West pointed this out when he wrote two tracts. One was called Race Matters, and then the other was called Class Matters. Now, you're a journalist. Talk briefly about uh, the Julian Assange WikiLeaks case and press freedom. After years of being stuck in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, he's been jailed in Britain and now faces extradition to and possible imprisonment in the United States. Well, what was uh, Julian Assange's crimes? He disclosed undisclosed information that described official crimes by governments, including the U.S. He, he disclosed war crimes in Iraq. So who are the criminals here? The, the people in the uh, empire? The people who destroyed Iraq? Bush? Cheney? Illegal, unconstitutional wars, violating Geneva Conventions, killing, injuring, and sicking millions of Iraqis in a country that never threatened us, not to mention other countries like Libya, which was Hillary's war, Hillary Clinton. So it's just an upside-down world here that Assange and others who disclosed government secrets of crimes are accused of being engaged in criminal behavior and subject to criminal prosecution and extradition. Some 40 miles from where you are in Winstead, Connecticut, is Newtown, Connecticut, site of the infamous 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in which 20 first-grade kids and six adults were slaughtered. Recently, the families of some of the victims settled a lawsuit for $73 million against Remington, the maker of the AR-15 style rifle used in the killings. Could this ruling lead to meaningful gun control legislation? Well, it uh, certainly fired up Senator uh, Murphy from Connecticut and some others who have taken up the cudgels to make sure there are bank, back, background checks and uh, that uh, military weaponry are not sold. There used to be a ban on assault rifles, then it wasn't renewed years ago. Uh, but this, this litigation was really extremely significant. The young lawyer who took it uh, was given a one out of 100 chance of prevailing because there's a federal ban on suing uh, the manufacturers of these weapons under the tort system. So they were immunized. But he found Connecticut law, which allowed uh, him to, to uh, expose the direct marketing to uh, vulnerable young men uh, trying to appeal to their machismo uh, and buy these weapons. And it was very, very damning evidence against Remington. Uh, and he persevered, Josh Koskoff, uh, out of Bridgeport, 
he persevered, and he got a Supreme Court of Connecticut okay, a narrow majority okay, to proceed with the trial. And Remington tried to block him all the way, uh, and they actually went bankrupt once or twice, and he kept proce- proceeding uh, without getting a fee on behalf of nine of the families, and he finally got them to offer a $30 million uh, settlement, but no disclosure of all the incriminating documents. He refused to do that. Most uh, trial lawyers would have accepted that. Uh, he refused. He said, the public has a right to know. We're going to go all the way. So Remington upped it to over $70 million and full disclosure of thousands of documents showing their malicious marketing intent and how much they knew about how these weapons would be misused by people who shouldn't have had any access to them. So this is a very triumphant chapter in the civil justice tort law history of our country, and he needs to be commended. Uh, There needs to be those kinds of lawyers who persisted against the opiates and the Sackler family and didn't, uh, or against Boeing, and they settle, they're willing to settle in return for giving up disclosure of all the internal documents that would produce future deterrence and perhaps criminal prosecution for these culpable companies operating this corporate crime wave that is facilitated by weak enforcement, poor budgets in corporate crime enforcement, and a whole sort of immunities that these clever corporate law firms have figured out uh, to insulate not only their corporation, but the CEOs from accountability. On February 27th, 1934, in Winstead, Connecticut, a child was born to Rose and Nathra Nader. Happy 88th birthday, Ralph. (laughs) Thank you very much, uh, David, and all your good work heard around the world with alternative radio, and I can say uh, you couldn't support a better media than alternative radio. Uh, Thanks again very much, Ralph, and happy birthday. Thank you very much, David. You were just listening to Ralph Nader on Mobilizing People. Ralph Nader, a legendary figure, has spent a lifetime fighting on behalf of ordinary people. He was named by The Atlantic Magazine as one of the hundred most influential figures in American history. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Chris Hedges, Noam Chomsky, Vandana Shiva, and Angela Davis. We have a series of programs with Ralph Nader. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Ralph Nader on Mobilizing People, and for the classic Howard Zinn book, A People's History of the United States, just call us at one 800 triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order online on our website alternative radio 
alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Evan Perkins and KGNU. Joe Itchy is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. You're tuned in to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Broadcasting from Treaty 7 land.
Namaste. Namaste.